Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 7, Perils in Washington, Part 1. Establishing a political presence in Washington, D.C. was an obsession for Dave Bankey. His run-in with E.L. Cord had convinced him that ALPA's primary purpose should be to lobby Congress to pass legislation that protects airline pilots. Employment contracts could wait, Bankey thought, while he marshaled his forces to build a case for federal legislation that would guarantee minimum standards for pilot pay and working conditions. He knew that ALPA would never be able to make even the best employment contract stand up against the legal assaults his powerful corporate opponents would surely launch until ALPA was a heavy hitter. Banky had chosen to live by the sword of political influence. It was a risky step because ALPA's enemies were big corporations with deep pockets, armies of lawyers, and lines of connections. There was a possibility that having chosen to live by the sword of politics, Banky and Alpa might wind up dying by that sword. Although Banky was the star in those early days, he had an effective supporting cast. But what kind of pilot gave up his free time for the headaches of Alpa work, all unpaid in those days? James Rowe of TWA was one of Banky's first volunteers. Having learned to fly in the Army Air Corps after graduating from the University of North Dakota with an engineering degree, he was exactly the kind of articulate, attractive young pilot Banky needed as a part-time lobbyist for ALPA. Rowe first met Banky when he volunteered to go to Washington to lobby the National Labor Board on Decision 83 in 1933. Rowe would wear his airline pilot uniform on Capitol Hill a tactic suggested by Banky, as it could get him into an office a little easier and get an appointment with busy senators and congressmen. For congressional committee hearings, Banky always liked to bring along a chorus of uniformed pilots to amplify that effect. Usually, Banky did the talking, with the occasional help from Eddie Hamilton, an ex-airline pilot who worked as ALPA's full-time Washington representative, or John Dickerman, a Washington lawyer who took Hamilton's place. Banky discouraged pilots from speaking up because an ordinary line pilot who was too outspoken in Washington could get himself into serious trouble. In the history of ALPA's struggle to create a presence in Washington, no episode was more crucial than the airmail cancellations of 1934. Dave Bankey and his volunteer pilots capitalized on this event to secure the future of the profession. It began as a seemingly classic case of good guys versus bad guys, with President Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal playing the hero, while Herbert Hoover and the airline operators as the villains. After a series of spectacular hearings chaired by Senator Hugo Black, FDR canceled the airmail contracts Hoover had awarded in 1930 on the grounds that they had been fraudulently approved. 
Postmaster General Jim Farley had urged FDR to cancel the airmail contracts, but he miscalculated. Farley had intended to reopen the contracts after a short interval, this time making sure the airmail money was spread around. On the other hand, FDR, who loved to experiment, started toying with the idea of reestablishing the old post office airmail service, complete with its own pilots, planes, and airfields. In the interim, FDR ordered the Army to fly the mail. The experiment did not start well, as Army pilots were not prepared to fly the mail regularly. Because of the Depression, peacetime Army pilots were limited to about four hours of flying a month, and it was required to be in good weather because the Army feared that bad weather flying might result in the loss of scarce aircraft. Although most Army pilots had received some rudimentary instrument instructions during flight training, most of the operational aircraft in those days lacked modern instrumentation. A few Army pilots managed to stay current by volunteering for Department of Commerce weather research flying, but such assignments were extremely scarce. As a result, only a few Army pilots had flown any instruments at all after winning their wings and several accidents resulted in fatalities. Although Army pilots learned to cope with the airmail on a reduced schedule after they got better equipment, there was an immediate outcry over the fatal crashes. This outcry was one of the New Deal's first public relations setbacks. It seemed that every prominent aviator in America was mad at FDR. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War I ace, denounced him for committing legalized murder. Charles Lindbergh flatly refused to serve on a special committee investigating the airmail crisis and accused the New Deal of being socialistic. Republican Senator Simeon Fiss of Ohio called the airmail cancellations the single most important issue since the Civil War. It was front-page stuff, a lot of heavy debate, wild charges, and good old-fashioned political hot air. And this volatile environment, where it seemed that everyone else was losing his head, Dave Banky kept his. Coolly and calmly, he almost single-handedly turned the airmail crisis of 1934 to the benefit of ALPA and the fledgling profession of airline piloting. From Banky's point of view, it was all a matter of power. FDR had it, and Banky wanted a share of it. He knew that FDR would come out on top of this little battle, and he wanted ALPA to be in the winner's corner. With every prominent aviator in the country screaming for FDR's blood, Banky figured it would not make much sense to join the pack, as FDR was notorious for punishing his enemies and rewarding his friends. So Banky publicly applauded FDR, stating, that in the view of pilots everywhere, the president's actions were the soundest, most constructive move yet taken in the history of air commerce. When the dust finally cleared, ALPA stood out as the only group inside the industry supporting FDR. Banky got his reward, a federally guaranteed minimum wage for airline pilots in the new Airmail Act of 1935. 
Behind these simple facts, however, lies a plan carefully calculated and skillfully played out by Alpa's founder. The cancellations had come as a great shock to Banky. He was in Omaha when he learned about them and promptly telephoned the New York Times to say that the pilots were entirely innocent of any fraud. He insisted that most airline operators were honest and that any graft between a few government officials and air operators should not discredit the entire industry. Banky had no alternative but to return to Washington. He had spent so much time there since the beginning of the New Deal that Pat Patterson, his boss at United, had fired him for absenteeism. Only by taking his own case before the National Labor Board had Benke won back his job. The last thing he wanted was to jeopardize it again. But the future of the piloting profession, ALPA, and the industry itself were all at stake. This time, Patterson approved Benke's request for a leave of absence. Banky had become a familiar figure in Washington, appearing at countless hearings and stating the pilot's position to anyone who would listen, but he never had much influence. ALPA, after all, was a small union with no real power. Whatever muscle Banky had came mostly from the fact that William Green, the president of the American Federation of Labor, liked Banky and lent his support. The cancellations had thrown many pilots out of work. The Army took back to active duty some who still held reserve commissions, but most found themselves either on reduced work schedules or not flying at all. Western furloughed its entire pilot workforce and ceased all operations. By early March 1934, nearly one-third of ALPA's members were out of work. Despite considerable grumbling in the ranks, Banky stood firm in his support of FDR. He tried to alleviate the unemployment problem by encouraging the Army to hire all airline pilots as a temporary reserve force for flying the mail. But most airline pilots didn't want to become government pilots again, preferring to work for civilian employers instead. Banky repeatedly told his pilots to lay low, trust his judgment, and put up with being temporarily out of work. He was on thin ice, but he insisted that FDR would take care of them if they remained loyal and did not join the attacks on the New Deal. Few pilots understood what Banky had in mind, but because he had been right so often in the past, they went along with him. Banky figured that FDR would eventually be forced to restore the airmail contracts to the private operators. The crucial thing from ALPA's point of view was to make sure that when the airmail contracts were written, the pilots would receive a slice of the pie, and only FDR could guarantee that. While Banky publicly sided with the president, privately, he was urging that the established airlines be given another chance. Underneath the public show of support for FDR, Banky was alarmed at the prospect of Postmaster General Farley allowing the small operators back into the airmail business. The small airlines paid notoriously low wages, and they were difficult to organize. So, with masterful equivocation, Banky urged that when new contracts were awarded, 
the government set minimum standards to keep out shoestring operators. Banky's position was almost identical to that of Walter F. Brown, Herbert Hoover's much-abused postmaster general. The only difference was that Banky stressed safety, while Brown stressed efficiency. In essence, ALPA's welfare and that of the old established operators were mutual. Once again, as in the century strike of 1932, Banky and the established airline operators who had lost their contracts joined forces in a temporary alliance. Banky guessed right. In March 1934, FDR announced that he would restore the air mail service to private operators. He really had no choice. The Army's business, after all, was national defense, not flying the mail. And with the country in the midst of its worst depression, it didn't make much sense to spend a lot of money recreating the old post office airmail service. When FDR reopened the airmail contract bidding, he exacted his political revenge in two ways. First, he insisted on the reorganization of the airlines involved in the so-called spoils conferences that preceded Hoover's airmail contract awards in 1930, banning airline executives who had participated in those conferences from taking part in the new bidding. Second, he insisted that new airmail contracts specify wages and working conditions for pilots. Of all the operators, only Patterson of United, Banky's boss, supported the inclusion of a minimum wage law. Banky stayed in Washington from February to June 1934, assisted by a committee of pilots whose routes included stops there. But Banky had a plan and it would culminate in Decision 83 of the old National Labor Board, the cornerstone of the modern system of airline pilot compensation. Anybody who has ever delved even superficially into ALPA's history or into the subject of pilot compensation has heard about Decision 83. What was it, and why was it so important? ALPA owes its existence to the desire of the early operators to abolish, once and for all, the old post office system of pilot compensation. Some of the new private contractors continued paying their pilots, many of whom had been flying the routes for the airmail service, in the same way as the post office. In other words, the private contractors paid their pilots a monthly base or minimum guarantee, plus a set amount per mile with added bonuses for night and hazardous terrain flying. A post office pilot could earn as much as $1,000 per month, and salary levels stayed pretty much the same on some airlines until the bottom dropped out of the economy in 1929. Suddenly, operators had to cut costs, and pilot salaries were the first on their hit list. When rumors of the impending pay adjustment began circulating in 1929, Talk of forming a union gained momentum. By the time talk had given way to action, Dave Banky and his cohorts were secretly collecting signed, undated letters of resignation called pledges. Most pilots would probably have accepted some reduction in pay if the old post office system had remained basically intact. But the operators were having none of that. 
They wanted either a straight hourly or monthly wage, stripped of all the little extras that, in their opinion, made pilot salaries so excessive. From the pilot's point of view, a straight monthly salary was unacceptable because it made no allowance for different types of flying, routes, or equipment. A few airlines, such as Northwest Airlines and Pan American Airways, had used the monthly basis of pay from the beginning, and their pilots definitely did not like it. For pilots with foresight, an hourly system was no good because, in the future, it would almost surely deprive them of productivity gains associated with flying new, faster aircraft. They resolved to fight. The focal point of this resistance was on TWA and United. A pilot named Hal George led the resistance at TWA. He had nearly as much to do with creating ALPA as Dave Banky did, and had George lived longer, the TWA pilots might well have been spared a lot of misery. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter seven of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2019. All rights reserved.